0: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. In his book, A Generation of Sociopaths, Gen Xer Bruce Gibney argues that aging baby boomers are holding up progress, and it's time they got out of the way.
1: So they're going to die before climate probably has a very significant impact on their lives. You know, if our agents don't share the same goals and time horizons as we do, then then there's a risk of a serious mismatch.
0: Should the boomers take their Cadillacs and beachfront property and fade into the sunset? Sustainability expert Wilfred Welch doesn't think so. He believes that his generation owes it to their grandchildren not to lead the charge against climate change, but to offer support.
2: Because we are the generation that has had the benefit of the fossil fuel generation. And now we have a responsibility to give something back to those people who now are going to be at the effect of
0: it. Inheriting Climate Change, up next on Climate One. Do the baby boomers owe millennials a clean planet? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans, and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Today on the program, Greg talks with leaders working across generations to educate people about the promise of clean energy and the perils of staying married to fossil fuels. We'll start things off with former venture capitalist Bruce Gibney. As a partner in the Founders Fund, Gibney championed the philosophy that startups should change the world, not just build a business. After leaving the company in 2012, Gibney turned to writing. His new book is A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. Here's our conversation about inheriting climate change.
3: Welcome, Bruce. Uh, You have a quote on the back of your book that I'd like to read, and uh, it says, Boomers squandered the greatest inheritance in history and are shamelessly irresponsible about crises from entitlement to the environment. What do you really think? Tell us what you mean by that.
1: Right, so this is uh, mainly a description of boomer Political culture and and obviously the sort of standard culture that sort of uh, sort of underwrites the entire boomer political culture. So my argument is not about individual boomers, although there are probably some politicians who fall well within the DSM's description of antisocial personality disorder. So you can take your pick. Uh, new options have been added to the table. So. There are a variety of uh, sort of indicators you can look for. So one of the questions is, can you have an antisocial society, right? So antisocial personality disorder is the DSM-5's name for what used to be called...
3: DSM being...
1: I'm sorry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So in the in the particular inventory that, that, that I was interested in, the antisocial personality disorder, you, you start you know, looking for a number of, of traits. So um, improvidence, sort of the, the inability to plan for the future, um lack of empathy, not caring about other people, let's say younger people, people who might be alive when there are no ice caps, that kind of thing. Um, Hostility, uh, uh, you know, an inability to form lasting relationships and and, and a whole sort of series of these things. And and sometimes these things sort of autocorrelate and sometimes they don't. So what I did was I I, I looked at boomer political culture and we we do have fairly decent longitudinal data about about the boomers, right? So I, I started the boom in 1940 um, for, for cultural reasons, and I focus mainly on sort of white um, middle-class boomers who had a fairly homogenous majoritarian experience, right? So the experience of minorities is radically different, and, and, and in some ways they were just sort of affirmatively disenfranchised until 1965, um, and then again after Shelby County. Um, so, you know, I, I focus on that. We have a, a long, you know, sort of long period of data, and, and I sort of look for um, behaviors that map on to this, sort of, this sort of syndrome and um, for example, you know, like, and how, how are you going to, you know, demonstrate that people, you know, like, you know, generations provident? Well, we have the cohort savings data for people, you know, stretching in some cases back seven decades. So we we know how, you know, people have behaved, um, and they've saved less and less, um, and they've accumulated more and more debt. Some of those debts will be passed down. Now, not all the debts are financial; although there. Quite considerable, and, and I'll get to how that impacts the environment later on. And, you know, if you care about the environment, you actually probably should care about the national debt as well. And and some of those debts are in, in the form of you know, quote unquote deferred maintenance on infrastructure. That's just that's just actually a liability. It's not deferred anything. It's just a, it's a pothole. Um, and uh, you know the the creation of um, you know a vast and fairly useless penal regime. You know, so now we have human deferred liabilities that we're going to have to do something about running down the the free higher public education system um that was built up uh, after world war 2 and uh, and so on down the line and one of the one's the sort of key non-financial debts that's being passed on is uh the environmental debt um that we owe and so you know some people have said well you know um you know isn't it the case that you know we we've, we've been using fossil fuels for a long time? Is this not a boomer problem? And and that's that's true, right? I mean, like you know, if you wanted to push it all the way back, you know, I'd ask Elon to build a time machine. I'd go back. I'd kill Zog who invented fire in the cave. And you know, so we can we can push it back too far. But you know, so the, the question is, when did we be, when did we become aware that environment and and in particular global warming was was becoming a serious problem? Now now people um, as early as the late 19th century were aware of the theoretical possibility that um that certain gases would contribute um potentially to dangerous global warming Al- alexander Graham bell i mean he was a fairly prescient guy um was one of them um there was a, a swede um he was for global warming as elizabeth colbert pointed out he lived in sweden so that was you know somewhat understandable um but by the, the 1970s, th- there was a growing concern that actually um, that human emissions of, of various gases, in particular of carbon dioxide, um, would pose problems down the line. So, um, you know, the sort of first multinational body um, to look at the influence of, of um, gases emitted on a warming climate was not the sort of famous IPCC um, but actually, it was the the world uh, climate panel convened by Jimmy Carter in 1978, 79. So we were aware of the potential um, uh, for environment to be a problem by the late 1970s. But we've seen no sort of no action that's adequate to the task um, since then. And you know, it's helpful to compare that to what we saw both under Republicans and Democrats um, uh, during previous environmental crises. So. In uh in the late 1940s the a toxic smog uh, settled on Donora, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. Um and and a few people died and there was an outcry and, and people said, you know, you see you need to do something about this, right? There there are these pollutants, these toxic pollutants that the the factories are emitting and and we have to have a response and a study group was um convened and then um you know, the, the states were allowed to engage in their, their own experiments, and then um, Eisenhower sort of began pushing through um, uh, work at the federal level, and by 1963, the Clean Air Act was passed. So, you know, it's about 15 years. So maybe sort of optimistically, you would say that, you know, sort of by, let's say, 1995, you know, action would be taken, especially because you had a younger sort of, you know, progressive president. But really, nothing serious happened in response. So... Um, It does seem that boomer political culture is is something of an outlier relative to prior political cultures um, and and its ability to to sort of plan for the future. And the environment, obviously, is a a key part of that future.
3: So if someone cares about uh, climate change, which usually is on the left, why should they care about the financial debt, which is usually more of a concern on the political right?
1: Sure. So... um, you know, when I was born in, in the 1970s, uh, national debt to GDP was 34%. And as of the end of the last year, it was 106% on a gross basis. And, um, you know, we're going to exceed the World War II peaks in the, in the 2030s. And if the Trump tax plan is passed in its entirety, um, you know, which is all two pages of it, it you know, it'll happen in the, in the late 2020s. And and the problem is, you know, in, in order to deal successfully um, with climate, we're going to have to spend money, and the more money that we have to pay to service the interest on the debt, the more money that um, we divert to shoring up um, an unreformed re- entitlement system for older people, um, the less fiscal room for maneuver, maneuver we're going to have to deal with with climate change. Um, so, you know, it's 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 very difficult. Like it would have been very difficult when um, debt was about 120 percent of GDP in 1946 to go back and ask united states to fight another war they didn't you know people were tired people had died they didn't want to pay for it and if we find ourselves in the same position in the 2030s you know you pe- people might respond you know we're, we're sort of fed up we, we don't have the fiscal room it's difficult enough to you know pay for a house much less you know a public edu- you know uh, um, a college education we just don't want to spend the money and the problem will just you know um compound so we, we have fairly reasonable methods to address it now we have the fiscal room To address it now. Um, We can either spend that money uh, on tax cuts or we can start spending on research and development. We can spend on the environment. We can spend it on a whole host of other things that are important to everyone, but especially younger people.
3: So how would the Trump uh, plan for health care and for tax cuts affect this ability to address the climate debt and the financial debt?
1: Right. So I, it's difficult for me to address the health care plan because like two hundred and seventeen members of the House, I haven't read it. Um, <laughs> with respect to um, you know the debt, you know, because roughly ballpark you know the the approximate cost of the tax plan, it would add an additional five trillion, um four, 4 to seven trillion, roughly, to to the national debt over ten years. It's not per year but 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 over ten years. Um, but one of the problems is the fiscal position in this country is already fairly bad, um, so that the deficit, which is going to be about minus two and a half percent of GDP right now, is going to expand to minus five percent under the business as usual scenario, um, but you know within ten years. So it's it's going to it's going to take a bad problem, and make it vastly worse, and we're going to you know we're going to end the 2020s in a much worse fiscal position, and that's exactly when you know people will. You know, want to make extremely expensive investments in climate. Now, in the end, those investments will be worth it, but it's it's hard when you ask people, you know, um, and and just to service the debt, you know, sort of, um, you know, I think the h- highest marginal tax rate in the late 2020s, which is the rate that people who are not working. People who are under 50 today will be paying. I think it's going to rise from 39.6. It will it will subside briefly if, if the tax cut is passed, and then under reconciliation, then it will rise probably. My guess is to 54 to 58 percent at the highest level, and, and and that'll probably trickle all the way down through the tax tables, right? And so if people are already paying that much federally in taxes, now that's just the final rate, not the effective rate, but that's the that's the one that people focus on, you know. And then they're asked to pay, let's say, a five percent climate surcharge. There, there might be incredible political resistance, whereas if you ask people to pay 1% climate surcharge now, people might actually, you know, sort of get behind it, or at least younger people might get behind
3: that. Uh, but you don't think that'll happen because still the boomers are in charge, and you think they should no longer be in charge?
1: Yeah, so I think we have a principal agent dilemma. So just to be clear, the boomers are in charge. We have a boomer in the White House, as we have since since Clinton. You know, under, under my definition, which is more cultural, it was, it was not clear that Barack Obama was a boomer. In fact, he actually disliked that label, which I think is fairly telling. Um you know, boomers were an outright majority of the electorate uh in nineteen eighty two. Um and even though their percentage has gone down, their rates of voting participation have gone up, um they controlled uh seventy-nine percent of the seats in the House in two thousand eight and still still control a supermajority today. So they're they're definitely in charge. But here here's the way in which that's that's probably um problematic. Even if you don't buy my sort of description of them as as a political culture of having sort of anti- Antisocial personality disorder. The reason why that's a problem is we have a principal-agent dilemma, and the principal-agent dilemma is, you know, if you if you have someone who's who's working for you, your attorney, your doctor, whatever, you, some some fiduciary, you you want them to be acting in your best interest, and you want them to be able to see things from your point of view. And if you have a, a seven-year-old uh, guy, to take a random example, um, you know, his time horizon for his beachfront property might be let's say fifteen years, and in fifteen years. It's probably fine to go around driving a Cadillac and, you know, and and to, you know, mine coal and and so on and so forth, because within within that 15 year time frame of his own planning, within that time frame of his own imagination, it's not actually a problem for him or. And, and we actually see this, for example, in, in public surveys of, of boomers as a whole, you know, just slightly more than a fifth of them believe that climate change will be a, will, will have a significant impact on their lives. And in this they are correct. Right, so they're going to die before climate probably has a very significant impact on their lives. So as as sort of our agents, right? So if we, the American people, are the principals, right? In theory, they work for us. If you know, if our agents don't share the same goals and time horizons as we do, then then there's a risk of a serious mismatch.
3: So most people in Silicon Valley tend to be well. There's a range, of course. Senior people at like Google, etc. Many boomers, Eric Schmidt, you know, born in what 55. Uh, but there 's a lot of a generation of young entrepreneurs who fit the category you just described of forty year olds who ought to be concerned about climate impacting them. Is that part of their consciousness and their business plan, or do they think that their wealth will insulate them and they 'll be okay because they can buy a place on the hill if their waterfront place gets inundated?
1: Uh, they can buy many places on many hills so that's <laughs> but um you know some some of them are concerned with the issue um, right so you know, we, we can question whether or not they're doing nearly enough. But there, there has, has been a trend, right, sort of towards like, um, you know, net zero on 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 their data centers, right, trying to reduce their their carbon footprint on their data centers and, and so on and so forth, and, you know, driving a Tesla for whatever. Because, of course, the batteries themselves are made of completely non-toxic materials. So that's, you know, but, you know, that's fine. It, actually, it's, it's better to have a Tesla than to have, you know, like a 1972 Cadillac Eldorado. So that's good, but um, but I think you know so for Silicon Valley, so environment is is sort of like a quasi public good, much like national defense or the highways um, or foreign policy. It's it's not something that you can ask even the most talented entrepreneur like Elon um, to go out and fix by himself. Now he can make significant contributions to this, right? So electric cars are better than again the the Cadillac Eldorado, right? And, um, you know, he's built, you know, he wants a backup biosphere on Mars in case we don't fix the climate problem. So he's you know, working on the rocket so that we can all escape, um, or if, by all, I mean, yeah. not that many, uh, <laughs> all who could afford Yes. I, I'm happy to offer you a friends and family discount. <laughs> I can do it. Um, but it's not a problem. You can, you can ask, um, you know, a single company to solve, and, and therefore it sort of you know, falls outside of their decision-making matrix, right?
3: You really take, uh, you know, just to say that a lot of things went in the wrong direction during the, the era of the boomers, SAT tests uh, went down when they were taking them, and up since then, and, you know, uh, breastfeeding went in the wrong direction, all sorts of things. You blame Dr. Spock, lots of things. Um, are you angry at all at any boomers that you personally know? You dedicate the, the book to your parents, uh, knowing what you... <laughs>
1: Sure <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that we've enjoyed our strongest run of presidents um in in the union's history, right um so I think that's problematic. I don't think we've enjoyed um the most forward thinking um senior congressional leadership so so i am I am angry at some boomer policymakers um at at individual boomers sort of. Less so. Um, I do worry. I, I, you know, sort of. I am frustrated, and, and uh, you know, you know, it's been you know, 25 years of this. I, I'm not sure that people actually improve at age at age 70. Um, you'll find out, I guess. Um, so I'm not, or or maybe they just don't become radically different. Maybe they're just great to begin with. All right, but I I don't I don't think they're going to become radically different. So I don't think we can expect a lot from the present political class, and I'd like to see them. Move on. I, th- I think they're standing in the way of, of genuine progress.
3: We're going to bring some boomers up here in a minute. If you're just joining us, I've been talking with Bruce Gibney at Climate One. He's the author of the new book, A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Boomers Betrayed America. I'm Greg Dalton. Ignacio Ochoa and Raul Zendejas are two youth organizers with the Sierra Club in Southern California. They talk about the challenges of educating older generations. Let's listen.
4: My name is Raul medel and I live in Mecca, California. I am um, volunteering with the Sierra Club San Cornero chapter. Air quality is one of the biggest issues in my community. My name is Ignacio uh, Enrique Ochoa, Jr. I'm 25 years old, born and raised in uh, Coachella, California. The work I do is uh, centered around clean energy. We're trying to get California to 100% renewables. I mean, I'm 19. I would say I'm I'm an older soul. But approaching people that are a lot older than me it's it's a bit difficult because I see that we had we just have different perspectives. I I feel it's more resistant to change if anything. It's like aging, it's I guess to some people it's scary and seeing their life and seeing everything evolve or you know it's just frightening. That whole Sierra Club, you know, typically older white demographic it's still kind of there and it, but it, it this is a, a time of shift it's mostly people of color it, involved the youth of color i should say i think you know with the power technology has has really evened the playing field because an older person had more power in community because they had more connections they had lived through life and a young person has to go through and make those connections but when you have a phone in your hand You get those connections. The phone helps you find those connections faster.
0: We're talking about cross-generational climate concerns here at Climate One. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton has been talking with author Bruce Gibney about the environmental legacy left by the baby boomers. We're now joined by three more guests. Carlene Cullen is the founder and executive director of Cool the Earth, a group that works within schools to educate children and their parents about climate change. Michael Ranney is a psychology professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And Wilfred Welch is a retired U.S. diplomat and the author of In Our Hands, a handbook for intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis. Let's continue with our discussion on inheriting climate change. Here's Greg Dalton.
3: Wilford Welch, we heard Bruce Gibney say boomers should get out of the way. And we just heard two youth activists saying environmentalism is about young people of color. Is it time for white boomers to get out of the way?
2: No, I think it's time for the white boomers to get in totally engaged with the next generation and support them in being the leaders of the shift that has to take place. Get out of the way in terms of not. Any being thinking of themselves as the leader, but think of them as support. Because we are the generation that has had the benefit of the fossil fuel generation. And now we have a responsibility to give something back to those people who now are going to be at the effect of it. Carleen Cullen, you,
3: like me, are at the tail end of the baby boom. Uh, and is it time for us to get out of the way? Time to hand over power to younger people? And interested in your thought there on, on youth of color being the future of environmentalism rather than kind of the, the white man in the woods.
5: All right. Well, first of all, I am Gen X, just, for, just to clarify <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> okay.
3: It depends on the definition, but okay.
5: Yeah. Uh, you know, just, just barely beginning. Greg and I were talking earlier, and I said e- either way, but after hearing... Uh, That evaluation, I'm firmly in Gen X. Uh, uh, You're you're in transition
3: to a new generation. Okay. Absolutely.
5: So, you know, I have always felt since uh, starting in climate change that kids are the essence of what's going to change our generation, the boomers' generation, and eventually the planet. Uh, Kids, white kids, African-American kids, kids of color of every sort uh, around the world – they really understand. they're not limited by our expectations of fossil fuel use and how we drive and how we get around in the world. They come to it with these open eyes, and being able to teach them um, that, where does energy come from, and how can we get clean energy? They can really drive their families to change and whole societies to change. Um, and I think that's essential.
3: Michael Ranney, there's a view that the older boomers we heard from Bruce Gibney and others, that you know, older boomers, maybe they watch Fox News. They're the ones who uh, are not going to be affected by climate. They don't think they want to, to address it. They don't want to pay the cost for something where they don't see the benefits. Is there any potential to change their minds, those older boomers, on, on the facts of climate?
6: Yeah, actually, we've had pretty good success uh, changing the minds of uh, uh, older boomers and uh, actually conservatives in general. I'm an experimental psychologist by training, and I run experiments, randomized experiments, where we try different materials, and uh, we found five different ways to decrease denial about climate change, or increase acceptance of climate change, in five minutes or less. And uh, it's true uh, even for conservatives. It floats all the boats. Uh, One of the key things is we tell people that uh, the information we're giving them is true. They can share with their family tonight, and there's no deception involved. And that turns out to be pretty critical, and they can look it up on Google later. So there's a lot of, uh, of, of possibilities. It's certainly the case, we know demographically, that older people do tend to skew more conservatively and are ethnicity things involved as well. But I think fundamentally, there are uh, unfortunately a lot of younger people that aren't so down with climate change as well, although you know, it's a correlational sort of thing.
3: So don't give up on the boomers. They can be. They can come around on climate and engage, as Wilford Welch has to be part of the part of the solution. Uh, Carlene Cullen, you're one of six, uh, one of seven children. You have some siblings in Texas who are t- uh, skeptical about climate and drive SUVs. How do those conversations go?
5: <laughs> well, <clears throat> when they tell you that uh, they ask it, my husband, "Do you read the New York Times?" and he says, "Sure," and they said, "I wouldn't wipe." hmm, okay, we're on radio. I can't say the rest of that. But literally, they wouldn't touch the New York Times. So that's how, that's how far right they wouldn't are. Wouldn't rap
3: fish in it, maybe. Wouldn't yes. wrap fish in it. There you <clears throat> go. Okay. Uh,
5: so, you know, the conversation, it's pretty much a non-starter, no matter how much scientific evidence there is. Um, but instead, we can approach it in different ways. For instance, uh, I can talk about the pure torque on my electric vehicle and how many more, uh, even American companies uh, like Chevy and uh, you know, that's coming towards an electric world. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just about climate change and reducing fossil fuel, fuel use. It can also be about a better world and a better uh, experience for them led lighting is much better than incandescent lighting uh the same we have a real opportunity with evs uh to get people moving over to that regardless of their climate or their political uh base
3: wolf of Weltry, you have numerous uh grandchildren uh, how do you is it easy to talk to them do there is there any guilt when you look at them and, and think about mm, what the boomers have done looking at grandchildren who will grow up in the world that bruce gibney described no
2: i don't have any guilt in the sense that i'm I was born just before the Second World War, or just at the same time of the Second World War, and I have benefited all those years from the fossil fuels that have created this more is better and economic growth at all costs kind of culture. Um, and therefore, so I don't even blame the fossil fuel industry. I say the fossil fuel industry created all of this wealth, and now its time has come and gone, and it should have gone earlier. OK, so I think my responsibility with my grandchildren is, as I said earlier, to support them in this transition. And that's what is happening uh, in the United States now when the fossil fuel industry declining, no matter what Trump says and and renewables are really taking off. So I'm, I'm hopeful for the future if we get our act together and I want to be part of that solution.
3: Bruce, give me your take on the fossil fuel industry going away. They're still very powerful. They still control a lot of members of or influence a lot of members of Congress.
1: Right. So coal is going away by itself. But um, due to market forces, large. Right. Natural gas and oil are not. Right. So, you know, in a BOE equivalent, a barrel of oil equivalent, the United States outproduces Saudi Arabia plus a few other Arabian Emirates combined. Um, and fracking is obviously, you know, so. Um, natural gas is, to the extent you know the you know the transmission pipes aren't like leaching methane into the air, and they're actually insulated and robust. You know it it, it is it's better than um, than oil and then um, than coal. But right, so the United States, just to be clear, is in, with the exception of coal, a fo- a fossil fuel renaissance. So the idea that you know it's going to sort of take care of itself is is pro- probably. Wrong, and the idea that you know, so I, I do take issue. I don't think that we can rely on, on the boomers um, to contribute. What would that? What form would that contribution take? Right. So you know, the oldest boomers are reaching the end of of, of their lives, um, and the younger boomers are just you know they're going to hit retirement within the decade. How how, how will one sort of collect the you know many trillions of dollars required? From the boomers, you know, in order to make the appropriate investments, right? So, if we're talking about like an unjust enrichment, right? How, how do you how do you claw back that uh, that amount of money from you know from people who are you know uh, you know reaching the end of their lives or who have been resistant to contributing to the to the national fisc, who are about to, you know sort of who are sort of ardent proponents of, of tax cuts and, and of dissaving, right? How do you allocate all those costs? To the boomers. What, what contribution is this going to take over the relevant time frame of the next 15, 20 years? And, and if, if, if they are going to contribute, why haven't we seen meaningful contribution yet? Why was it that, you know, sort of CAFE standards took a hiatus between 1986 under Reagan and, and 2010? Where was that contribution,
3: right? Carleen Cullen, uh, some of the earliest people that you've trained, you started at eight, now they're 18. Uh, you've sensed that there's some coming... Anger that we're hearing from from Bruce Gibney among the generation as they awaken and they realize what we are leaving them.
5: Yeah, so I think there's a, one of my great fears is that uh, this generation, the younger generation, will not only have to deal with the typical Freudian things that they go to therapy for about what their parents did, but now they're going to have to go to a climate therapist as well, wondering, you know, what do, were my parents thinking um, I see that a lot of the kids feel very empowered and they see the opportunity for change and they're not afraid to say so and they're not afraid to say so in a certain way that's not combative because combative approaches can turn a lot of people off.
3: Wilford Welch used to chair the board of the National Outdoor Leadership School, uh, which trains kids in backpacking and wilderness kind of survival skills. Mm-hmm. Is that something that uh, you'd like to send your grandkids in case they need it in a climate disrupted world?
2: Well, to give a plug to something else up been the chairman of Nature Bridge, which is right across here and is really doing the work that Knowles is not. I am Knowles is part of my soul, but Knowles is providing skills to climb Mount Everest Nature Bridge and those organizations, there are a number of other ones too, are providing education to our young kids in stewardship of the planet. And that's really what is important. And that's what I'm going to send all of my grandchildren.
3: You're just joining us. We're talking about uh, the inheritance of climate change from boomers onto Generation X and millennials. Our guests at Climate One today are Carlene Cullen, founder of Cool the Earth, Bruce Gibney, author of Generation of Sociopaths, Michael Ranney, a professor of psychology at University of California at Berkeley, and Wilford Welch, who's a speaker on sustainability. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. We're going to ask a brief uh, questions, brief answers, starting with association. I'll mention a brief uh, word or word or phrase and ask our guests for their fir- the first thing that comes to their mind unfiltered straight from the Frodian depths. Michael Ranney. Um and um, first Carleen Cullen. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I mention polar bears? Death. <laughs> uh, Michael Ranni The role of culture in determining people's thoughts and behavior. Important. Bruce Gibney, White House advisor Steve Bannon. <laughs> Mortal <laughs> Wilford Welch, Climate One. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> true or false, Bruce Gibney, the United States has become something of a petrostate. True. Wilford Welch, true or false, the more money boomers leave to their kids, the better off they will be. I would say false. Michael Ranny, older boomers should leave most of their money to their kids instead of their third or fourth wives because their kids will need it in a hot and disrupted world. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to those third and fourth wives. Uh, uh, Carlene Cullen, true or false. It's harder to talk to teenagers about sex than climate change.
5: No. No. Uh,
3: michael ranney true or false many millennials need a good therapist to cope with the stress of living in a society disrupted by severe weather will be true yeah i think carlene cullen gave you a little bit of a research opportunity climate therapist new term coined here (laughs) let's give a round to our group for uh uh, getting through the gauntlet (laughs) michael ranney if Mm -hmm. someone encounters a climate skeptic what's the best way to persuade them well, generally what I do
6: is I try to make a little bit more apparent to them uh, how their denial is on a house of cards. So, for instance, uh, one of the more interesting uh, plane rides I took recently was uh, about a four-hour trip, and I was working on a talk, and this fellow next to me um, said, Oh, you believe in that climate stuff, huh? And I said, Well, yeah, it turns out I do. And he says, uh, Not so much for me. And I said, Okay, so do you think Earth is heating up? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, why do you think it's heating up? And he says, it's volcanoes, I think. And I said, oh, okay, so why now, in this point of history, has the Earth decided to heat us up? Why is there more volcanic activity now than before?" And he said, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, here, I have this explanation that explains why we're getting hotter now. And uh, you know, the mechanism how sunlight comes in, it gets absorbed, sent out, Uh, greenhouse gases don't care about the sunlight coming in but they care a lot about the infrared going out and because we're putting more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that's why we're heating up and my explanation does explain the change and yours doesn't so why would you believe your volcanic theory and so uh, we went on for quite a while and there were other reasons uh, that he denied it some of them i think were Because of his business, he was connected to the fossil fuel industry. Some of it was (laughs) denial. (laughs) By the way, that's a great argument. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. not that directly, but indirectly. Denial, he had three children. Mm -hmm. And I think he was afraid. You know, he he was probably about 70. And I didn't think he wanted to imagine an earth in which, you know, his kids and grandkids were going to be in this trouble. And so I think that was one of his reasons for denying it. And then also, he, as he, he was leaving, he said, and I don't like how political it's gotten, which is like the cultural part. And I've actually uh, published a theory about uh, why I think Americans are different in terms of thinking about climate. And I think culture is really important. But So he had this sort of uh, potpourri of things, and I would just keep trying to knock things out. And at the end, I said, you know, we're not dead yet. We can help it. We can help these these kids and grandkids and so forth. And I, I think it's, it's interesting, because... Every denier is a little bit different, and they bring a different kind of uh, panoply of reasons. But usually, if you just keep knocking out the legs of the table, eventually, you know, I, I think if I get anyone on, the, on a desert island, even in Senator to Inhofe, I could turn him within, you know, a week or two.
5: <laughs> Greg, Greg, can I... Can I uh, sure, Colleen Cullen. <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, I just play the what's worse game. You know, what's worse if you're wrong in your denial? What's worse if I'm wrong in my belief of climate change and you know pretty quickly it uh, you just look at risks and the risks of not believing in climate change and it being true are so over the top so impossible that you really can't go back and say well I'm you know because I'm not hundred percent sure they can't be hundred percent sure but from my risk analysis and if anybody goes down that path That path, it's uh, it's pretty clear which way that they need to go.
3: Right. There's the old Steve. uh, Steve Schneider was a late founding father of modern climate science at Stanford. We all take fire insurance on our homes. This is kind of an insurance policy, uh, even if it proves out to be not as bad as some people project. Carleen Cullen, you've also had some run ins with people, cops and confrontation in places like Texas and also in the San Francisco Bay Area with your school program. So tell us about some of the resistance you've met trying to bring climate into the classroom.
5: Sure. Uh, So my husband and I started this program about 10 years ago. And uh, when we started, the nomenclature of climate change and global warming really wasn't commonly used. People weren't really didn't know much about it at the time. Uh, And we started our program in Marin County. And even in uh, Novato, in northern Marin, there was North, north of San Francisco, north of San Francisco, uh, there was an incident where a parent kept harassing uh, the principal, saying that you can't bring this program to the school, you can't teach the kids this uh, climate you know, science that's really not science at all. Uh, and it ended up being that she had to call the police because he started uh, harassing her at home. Uh, and so this hmm. ended up uh, you know, in an arrest. Uh, and But it was true across the country. People, Parents would come in with their laptops, uh, typically dads, sorry, dads, uh, and say, you know, this isn't true and here's why. Um, we were kicked out of a school in Texas, um, you know, camera crews, the whole deal, because uh, some, of the, some of the parents were up in arms that we were going to be teaching about climate science. But now over the past four years, we go into schools in Kansas, we go into schools in the middle of the heartland of the country, and there is virtually no resistance at all. So really, it's changed significantly um, the, the amount of acceptance about climate science, which is just fantastic.
4: Go for Welch.
2: I think there are three ways that boomers may change their mind, these psychopaths that you talk about. Uh, One is their grandchildren. Another is guilt that we talked about. And the third, I think, unfortunately, is the more likely. And that is something really bad is going to happen, that all of a sudden, in cumulative terms over the next several decades, it's not going to be just Bangladesh that goes underwater. It's a lot of other things that are going to hit us very close to home, and they're going to wake us up. So I, I think that, unfortunately, is going to have to happen for a lot of people to wake up. But then there's also, there's a clear shift. There are a lot of people in this room that I know who are working. There are boomers, and they are making huge difference in terms of changing the conversation so that you can go to
4: Kansas.
0: We're talking about how to span the generation gap when it comes to climate change. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Today, we're asking how baby boomers can engage with future generations in the fight against climate change. Our guests are Michael Ranney, professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, author and sustainability expert Wilfred Welch, Carlene Cullen, a former tech entrepreneur and founder of Coolie Earth, and author Bruce Gibney. Let's hear some questions from our live audience. Hi, my name is Noreen Nayar. Thank you so much for everyone. This has been very interesting for me. So uh, I think a lot of people out there are feeling a bit of a conflict and a lot of confusion in regards to even the Keystone Pipeline. We've seen a lot of really amazing policy shifts that we had in the past now go backwards. Uh, As uh, Michael said, you know, this is not maybe the perfect time for us to stay so politically correct when we're addressing situations that have a severely different messaging coming at us. So as individuals who are currently leaders in the climate change space, how are you addressing, uh, shifting your message to deal with a situation that we are no longer in a place where we can talk in these PC terminologies around Thank some you. of the most um, impactful things in our generation's Thank time? Thank you. Thank you.
5: Car-
3: Carleen Cullen?
0: Great dying to answer that question
5: uh so the first thing is um like bruce had mentioned you know consumerism i am absolutely in favor of uh consumerism and using it as a tool to advance our climate interests (laughs) um if we stop driving internal combustion engine vehicles keystone will not need to be built you know Europe is advancing in electric vehicles. I know they have lithium ion batteries, um, and there's toxic stuff in there, and it's not, they're not perfect, but the carbon footprint of all of us driving around in our gas cars is tremendous. It's just absolutely huge. So I look at it that we have this opportunity for Dakota and for Keystone. Uh, if we just make this radical shift to a better driving experience, this is not a sacrifice. Driving an EV is so much fun. They're just so fast and they're quiet and they're powerful. Uh, I went to Yosemite in my Bolt, uh, my Chevy Bolt this past weekend, and it was a fabulous experience. Um, so I think we have an opportunity through the things that we buy, uh, that we can influence the, um, things such as, as pipelines.
3: Electric is sexy. Michael Rennie. Well, I think, um, even though
6: most of what I do is, uh, is straightforward science and uh, we have a, a website, I should plug how that has a number of these materials. But really one of the reasons I got into this was because I was concerned like many of the panelists and time is fleeting and i think that one of the most important things you can do is hold uh public officials accountable like one of the things that bruce sort of brought up uh in his book about people who only have a 15-year timeline you can also remind people, including public officials, that even after they're dead, we'll be able to analyze what they should have done. You know? And you know, one of the reasons I do this is I don't want you know, when I'm 95 in the nursing home to say, gee, you know, I only wish I would have done that, but you know, Netflix was so good. I think you know, we, we should <laughs> remind people that even after they're gone, they will be accountable for what they haven't done for the, for the next generation. And voting is a big way of, of making change.
3: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. I was wondering, in a time where I think we're seeing an increase um, requirement on progressive policy change being made at the state level before it can get national consideration, uh, if you thought it was a, a realistic goal to get majority state policy change to move policy conversation to the national stage, uh, or if you, you thought that uh, we were, would have to take, a, a I guess, a different path to uh, national policy change. Bruce Gibney, states are the incubators of democracy.
4: Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, there are like four states um, that that are the incubators. So, you know, when California decided that it was was going to have, you know, reasonably robust emission standards, because it it is such a large economy, you know, Detroit just basically had to follow along. Um, Texas was in the same position with respect to um, textbooks. Um, because it was a large unitary buyer of textbooks, and it bought on behalf of several other states, and so that drove part of the curriculum. And you know what the results are on that. So there are some states that are able to drive because of their size, um, uh, national policy, because there there is no choice; you can't ignore them as a market. Uh, you know, uh, but the, but for many other things, you know, sort of th- there is no substitute for um, for national action. And unfortunately, with climate, this is. This is even harder, right? because not only you have to corral all the states into national action, but you have to corral all the nations or all the sort of meaningful nations. Again, there are probably like four that really matter in, into, um, into meaningful action. So, um, so so it's challenging. but again, this is this is where I think the principal agent thing comes comes in. You sort of, if you have principles who are aligned. With, uh, with the long-term you know, needs of their populations. That,
3: that does tend to work out better. Mm-hmm. Next question. Welcome.
5: Um, so I think Carlene mentioned uh, if you just uh, start knocking the legs of the stool, you'll eventually convince them. And Michael mentioned that there were five uh, psychological ways that you can most effectively convince somebody about climate change. What, what's your advice on how to talk to people about these things?
3: Michael Ranney?
6: So one of the things that is uh, pretty effective is pointing out that people don't know the mechanism. It turns out 0% of Americans know the mechanism of global warming, even at like a 35-word level, and even many of my colleagues and so forth. And the reason a mechanism is important is because it's a kind of tiebreaker. That is, if you have Rush Limbaugh and you have Rachel Maddow yelling, it's happening, it's not happening, but you don't have the meat on the bone, you know, in the way that you would perhaps understand how a toilet works, uh, you really can't move forward in terms of, of understanding that. Also, like uh, statistics are very powerful. Like one of the statistics we use that others haven't really conceived of before is: we ask people for every 100 record colds that occur in the United States, how many record uh, high, highs are occurring. And so, if you think that well, it's not really happening, you think there's just 100 record highs to 100 record colds. It turns out there are 204 204 record highs every year for every 100 record lows so you can see what the what the direction is of of our temperature even in the united states so there are things like that you can compare the the graph of the stock market over time with a graph of temperature over time i ran this at uh, the university of chicago with uh, the business school and they couldn't tell the (laughs) difference between the two they're clearly both going up and so they're really very salient ways where you can make this clear and it doesn't take very much time at all
3: Probably doing it without arrogance and judgment probably makes a difference, Carlene Cullen. Yeah.
5: yeah, so you know, I'm because I'm not a scientist. Uh, one of the reasons is that my my approach is really about personal behavior change levers. So uh, when I talk to somebody, um, <clears throat> we talk about, gosh, is the government going to solve this issue for us? We all know certainly with this administration, it's not going to solve it, uh, and even under Obama's administration. Um, it was pretty clear that we didn't have a Congress that was going to be open to advancing real legislation because of the political divide, uh, that we have technological solutions, and those are advancing, but we need consumers to adopt uh, those, those solutions. So what are we left with? We're left with holding up a mirror, looking in it and saying, I have to be responsible for this. And what are the mechanisms as an organization? We look at this and we say, what are the mechanisms that we can use to help people make those behavior changes? Because behavior change is really hard. Uh, so one of the mechanisms is children. Children can influence their parents in a way that none of us can influence each other. Uh, So that's a tremendous opportunity, as well as as grandkids uh, have been mentioned. So taking personal responsibility.
3: Talking about climate inheritance and Climate One, let's go to our next question. Welcome.
5: Hi, my name is Betsy Rosenberg, and I'm a baby boomer right in the middle. My obsession is, where's the media? My industry, broadcast news. And I believe that Fox perpetuating climate denial is a big part of the problem. Uh, We're eco-illiterate in this country and i think that's part of the reason that trump won i would love for any of you to tell me your views on isn't there any responsibility on the part of our news networks that are supposed to be informing our citizenry and how can we have a democracy that can even decide what to do about it if we don't have informed population
3: thank you michael Ranny.
6: so i've had the chance to teach in a brief module in the graduate school of journalism actually on the berkeley campus in which i was teaching numeracy and scientific literacy and part of the reason I, I got into that was because I was concerned about how climate was being portrayed. And often there's this sort of pseudo balance that occurs where, you know, they, they have to have, you know, one of the very few climate uh, scientists who thinks that maybe global warming isn't occurring. And they grab one of the, the uh, 97% who do. And, and part of it's because, you know, they want to generate a little bit of a controversy. And it's almost like, well, you'd have a person who accepts gravity and one who doesn't, you know. and and so i think that's part of it the other part of it is that numeracy really isn't as as high as it could be in the in the media in general and part of it also is there's been a neglect of climate so for instance uh climate was like the number four voted question that should have occurred during the presidential debates but here was something that you know is really important i mean we all i think it's important and there wasn't a single moderated question that occurred during those presidential debates or the or the vice presidential one
3: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about the climate inheritance.
5: Hi. um, So my question is, uh, I think we saw in the last election cycle that tribalism and populism and sort of this anti-elitism thread is really strong in our country right now. What can we do to kind of make climate change or the potential terrible impacts of climate change become the issue for the people? How do we weave that in?
3: Michael Ranny, on the tribal point, Mm -hmm. people who watch MSNBC talk to people who watch MSNBC and believe what people who watch uh, MSNBC think, and the same for people on Fox. How to get beyond that tribalism?
6: Well, there is a bit of an asymmetry. Actually, there's a little bit more tribalism among conservatives. It's just empirically true. Uh, But there's certainly siloing in terms of the information that people are are seeing. And I think that that's part of the difficulty, part of the Internet and the, the fake news and all, but one of the things I think that's important to point out is that uh, we need people to realize that this is a fixable problem because people do turn off. And this is, relates to the earlier question uh, when they think there's, there's no solution. Uh, some colleagues of mine, uh, Feinberg and Willer, have shown that if you can couple a solution to the problem, then they're much more to, likely to be engaged And that's true whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the relatively cheap, to my mind, way that we can move to sustainable power or other ways to to fix the climate. They need something to hang on to. You can't just give them gloom and doom.
3: Yeah, where do you go with that? We've been talking about baby boomers in the environmental and financial debt they are leaving to Generation X and millennials. Our guests have been Carleen Cullen, a former entrepreneur and founder of Cool the Earth, which educates schoolchildren around the country about climate change. Bruce Gibney, a Silicon Valley investor and author of A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America, Michael Ranney is professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and Wilford Welch, a retired diplomat and business consultant who now works on sustainability. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, everybody.
0: listening to inheriting climate change what will boomers leave behind a climate one program hosted by Greg Dalton to hear all our climate one conversations subscribe to our podcast at our website climateone.org or at iTunes Stitcher or wherever you podcast please leave a comment we'd love to know what you think about our conversations on energy food water technology psychology and more please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy economy and environment
3: Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea is the audio editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. <laughs>